Romans 3.23. Now I'm going to make a disclaimer before I begin, which is probably not a good thing to do, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, And that is this. We're going to read a passage of Scripture that is so chocked full of deep, rich truths. And when the service is over, you're going to look back at that passage and you're going to go, He didn't talk about that. He didn't talk about that. He didn't talk about that. And, and, And I'm doing that on purpose, okay? So I'm just telling you, it's not that I'm unaware that all that stuff is there. Unless you want to be here until next Christmas, we, we probably can't touch on everything to, the, to its fullest extent that's here. Really what I want to do is I want to focus in on one thing and hopefully cover that really well and then it'll be left up to you to uh, continue maybe in the book of Romans and do some study on some of the other wonderful truths that are there. Here's the last disclaimer that I'll make, and that's this. And my wife can testify to this. She has, for I don't know how many months now, endured my constant talking about these things. The things we're going to discuss this morning are not some formulation from some book that I read, some article, something like that, and I'm coming to you and I'm presenting some grand argument uh, to persuade you to a certain perspective or any of those things. These are intimate truths that the Lord has used powerfully in my life over this year. And I am very thankful for them and I have been looking forward to the opportunity to share this message with you all. And so please understand it and take it in that way. Okay, enough of the disclaimers. Let's get to the good stuff. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the One who has faith in Jesus. Well, 2018 is almost permanently locked away in the prison of the past, never to escape again. It will never sneak out and become the present. It will never sneak out and get back to the future. It will always be locked in the past. And we'll visit it with memories. We like to, at the end of years, remember them through lists. Have you noticed this? We like the list of the top songs, the top books for the five people who still read. We like to remember that. What we really love is to do the you know top 100 viral videos so we can waste that time yet again watching the same videos that we've already watched way too many times. And that was, of course, the significant part of 2018 were those videos. We'll remember it in those ways. As we leave 2018 and we we look to 2019, I think we could maybe agree on this, this notion that as we leave 2018, as a nation... There's a sense of feeling divided more than 
I wouldn't say ever before, but there's certainly this sense of division among us. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and pontificate as to the reasons of that because what would happen is you would not agree with the reasons for our divisions and then we would be divided about what we're divided about and we're not going to do that. Here's the thing. The thing is that even as we leave 2018 and we feel this sense of division, what we are all experiencing as we leave 2018 and as we look to 2019 is something that is a very human experience that is not relegated to uh, any group, one group of humanity. It's not just for people who vote this way or vote that way or live on that side of the tracks or this side of the tracks or happen to be this ethnicity or that ethnicity. And here is the thing that all of us, it is a normal human experience no matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter how much money you make. And it is this, when you and I look back on 2018, there is not a single one of us who would look back and go, man, I totally nailed it. I crushed 2018. Every opportunity that came my way, I crushed it. I mean, when I look back on 2018, I can't think of a single area that I could have done better with the, re- the means that I had, the resources that I had. There's not a single person that I know of that would say that if they were being honest and if they were mature enough to really evaluate their life. All of us have this common experience. We look back and we go, man, I, I, I I'm, didn't measure up. <laughs> and it's not just in, in small ways. Right? It's not just, hey, I happen to be carrying a few more pounds into 2019 than I'd like to be. I'm not talking about a backpack. Those are kind of some of the superficial things, but the reality is I don't think there's a husband in here that in the presence of his wife or looking in his wife's eyes could say, honey, I just want you to know I crushed it in 2018 as a husband. I mean, I nailed it. You can agree at any point. Right? There's no wife in here that would do that with her husband. There's no parents that would look at their children unless they're still like babies and they wouldn't know any different. And you say, hey, we're crushing it here. Right? Uh, there's no kids that could look at their parents. There, there are no students that could look at teachers and teachers at students and employers at employees and employees at employers and neighbors and friends in these significant areas of our life, here is our common human experience. It is that we, we leave 2018 and we look into 2019 and we all know we are not measuring up. We all know that. We all sense that. It is a totally human experience. And, and I think it's, it's, a, it's part of our being made in the image of God. As Scripture talks about, eternity is written on our hearts. And so we have this unique experience because we're image bearers where we recognize we're not measuring up. No matter how much DNA we might share with an ape, I have yet to see the viral video of an ape making New Year's resolutions. Of an ape sitting and contemplating going, man, I wasn't very apish in 2018. I'd have to do better. That's what apes sound like if they would talk. 
It's what it would be like. No birds going, man, I walked way too much in 2018. I've got to fly more. It's a human experience. We do this because we're made in God's image. We all know this. It is part of who we are. It doesn't take long. We don't have to reflect very long to identify with the reality that we are failing in the most significant areas in our lives. And some of us look into 2019 and we go, I'm going to make those New Year's resolutions. And then there's the rest of us like me who go, I'm not even going to bother because I've made a lot of them and I've failed at all those. So we'll just forget it. But we all know 2019, there are so many ways that we could improve. So many things that we could do differently. And that is part of what the Apostle Paul is getting at here in Romans 3.23. We know this verse very well. For all have sinned. And right at the outset, we got this tiny little word, all. And many times we use the word all as hyperbole, as exaggeration. We use it that way all the time. But Paul's not exaggerating here. Paul's picking up, I think, an argument that he has systematically made starting back in chapter 1 about verse 18 and flowing all the way through to chapter 3 and verse 20 where he systematically walked through all of humanity and pointed out that all humanity is condemned in their sin. Paul is certain of this and is saying everyone is included in that not because he had some apostle superpower like Santa and he knows who's been naughty and who's been nice. And everybody's on Paul's naughty list. No, it is because Paul is speaking from a theological standpoint. He knows that everyone, all, not just meaning everybody Paul knew or only people up to the time that Paul wrote this letter or only people up to the time that the, the Roman believers got the letter and read it, Paul can say, with total certainty, all people of all time, every human being who has ever been born, save one, have sinned. And he can say that with such conviction because of who we are. We are sinners. Adam, being not born but made by God, formed by Him, fell in sin, and when He fell, we all fell with Him. And every single human being born of a man after that was born in sin. It contaminates all that we are, every part of us, and so every human being who is born is born a sinner. So Paul can say, without knowing everyone on planet earth, or meeting everybody, or having a record of everybody's life, he can say with absolute conviction, all have sinned. And we sin because we're sinners. It's part of who we are. Now, I know up to this point you're going, okay, this is interesting, but this is really nothing new, and this sermon is getting a little boring already, and I'm getting that itch to check my social media feed because I know this, for all have sinned, right? I can quote the rest of the verse for you. Well, this part of the verse up to this point, I, I at least had kind of a right understanding of. But what gets me about Romans 3.23 is that for the longest time, I have totally misunderstood what I think Paul is saying. I get this part. I got this part. For all have sinned. 
But somewhere along the line, for some reason, and I don't know where, I tried to find someone to blame. I looked at all of the different translations that I could find. The Old King James, New King James. I even looked at the Living Translation from years ago. The God's Word Translation. I mean, all anywhere I could look so I could take the blame off of me and put it on someone else for the way I used to understand this verse. And it was this, for all have sinned and fallen short. Past tense fallen short. And when I understood the verse that way, which isn't what it says, by the way, I was able to take Romans 3.23 and use it the way I often hear it used and the way I almost exclusively used it, which was to talk to sinners, unbelievers. That's what Romans 3.23 is there for. It's a nice verse in the pocket. You know, somebody you're talking to somebody, you're telling them, hey, you're a sinner. Hopefully you didn't lead with that. Hi, my name's Eric. You're a sinner. I don't recommend it. But you get to this point and you have this verse. Here it is right here. For all have sinned and fallen short. And Paul is talking here about you as an unbeliever. Well, here's the difficulty. The difficulty comes in that, yes, the first verb there is past tense. For all have sinned. The problem is the second verb is not past tense. It is present tense. Not fallen short, but fall. Present passive. It's happening. The subject is receiving the action. Middle school boys are all like, what are we talking about right now? This is too much grammar. It's present tense verb. Are falling short. Not a past thing. A present tense reality. For all have sinned and fall short. Now, just to further kind of try to warp your mind like mine is, I don't think that Paul is talking here to exclusively unbelievers. In fact, right at the end of verse 22, you see it ends with this little phrase, for there is no distinction. Now that could go with verse 22. I think it better goes with the statement there in verse 23. There is no exclusion. What Paul is saying is there is no distinction. There's no distinction at all for all have sinned and here is the present tense reality of every human being, saved or unsaved, Democrat or Republican, rich or poor, no matter their ethnicity, on our own, every single person is constantly falling short. No one is measuring up. So does this verse speak to unbelievers? Of course it does, but here's the reality. (laughs) I'm in Romans 3.23. I, as a believer, am in Romans 3.23. My present tense reality for me is that I am falling short. On my own, I'm falling short. That's my reality. Now, I say that And I can say that up here because I've had all those conversations with Amanda and I've wrestled with this. But even as I say that to you now, something inside of me kind of bristles up. And I'm like, what? Who are you talking to? You know? Come on. I push back against that. And what's interesting is, is just a few minutes ago when we're talking about our own standards of what a good husband or a good wife or a good parent should be, 
we're ready to say, hey, I'm not measuring up. I know that. I know I could have been a better husband. I could have been a better parent. I could have been a better student. I could have been a better employer, employee, and on down the list we go. But for some reason, when, when I get here and hear this and hear that my present tense reality as a believer is that I am in Romans 3.23, I have sinned and I am present tense falling short. I, I, I don't like that. Well, the standard is really important because if I'm willing to admit I'm falling short of my own standards, it's important to look at the standard that Paul lays out. And what is that standard? We know it, right? What's the standard? The glory of God. The glory of God. Not Pinterest. Not Instagram. The glory of God. That's the standard. Now, we quote this verse so often that it just kind of rolls off of our tongue. It is honestly a little odd here. In the flow of Romans, you would think that what Paul would say is that, that it's the standard is the righteousness of God is revealed in the law. That would fit with where he's been and the language he's been using. And I think when he says the glory of God here, it means at least that. It can't mean less than that. The righteousness of God is revealed in His law, but I think it goes beyond that. If I had to sum it up, what I would say is this. What Paul means when he says the glory of God is he's going all the way back to Romans chapter 1 and then jumping even further back than that, all the way back to Genesis. And he's saying every single human being was made as an image bearer. And as an image bearer, your purpose, my purpose was to do what? To reflect the glory of God. All the time, in everything we do, our purpose is to reflect the glory of God. That's why we were created. That's what we are to do. And so Paul's point is clear. <laughs> Any area in my life where I am failing with all that I am to reflect back to God His glory... Not seeking a glory of my own, but reflect back to God His glory is an area I am, what? I'm falling short. Now if we just want to try and take that and put that like bottom shelf, I think as you go through Scripture, one of the simplest ways to ask this question, am I, am I, am I reflecting God's glory, would be to take what we're given by Jesus Himself as kind of that, that summation of what it would look like if we were perfect, and it would be that we'd love God with all that we are, right? Everything. And we love our neighbor as ourselves. So here's the test just for you. You be honest with you right now. And ask yourself that question. Throughout 2018, was there a moment when I was loving God, we'll just break it down, with all of my mind? With every part of my mind, at some moment in 2018, I was loving God with all my mind. Now you might say, well, there was that moment I was praying, had a good cup of coffee, my Bible was out, and it was, you know, the kids were still sleeping or something. And, and there, there was that, okay, so in that moment, I got, my mind didn't get, am I, were you loving God with all of your strength? 
And if you could say yes to that, then could you say at that same moment, you were loving God with all of your heart, that causal core of who you are as a human being, your sole motivation was love for God. That's what was motivating you. Now, I, I lost out with mine. I don't have a great one, but what I do have, I'm not always loving God with all of my mind. And I can't look back and find a moment where I'm saying, man, I'm, at that moment I know I was loving God with all my mind. But let's just say for argument's sake, someone in here says, ooh, 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 me, 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 me. I had this moment, super spiritual moment, was listening to a Chris Tomlin song, my Bible was open, I had been praying, uh, ran into a person that needed Jesus, and, I, and, I, you know, and, and whatever the moment is, you, you create the scenario. That moment, I was loving God with everything, and I was loving my neighbor as myself. It was happening. Well, here's the thing. This standard is not like the high jump. That's the way I tend to think about it at times. It's the high jump, right? You get all of your spiritual momentum going. This is how people run spiritually. You run... Going, I'm going with all my spiritual might. I'm having a week of consistent quiet times and long prayers. I'm praying for everybody. Every email, every prayer request that comes in my emails, I'm clicking on it and praying and I'm running and I go to a conference and I only listen to praise and worship music that's Baraka approved and I'm running and I'm going... And then at the peak moment, whenever it comes, I flail my spiritual person towards this high mark of the glory of God. And maybe through odd contortions of my body, I convince myself I made it over that mark. Of course, only to come quickly crashing back down to the ground. And then I applaud myself. Whew! I got it. See, that's not the kind of standard this is. It's not the, it's not the high jump. It's, it's more like the water level. <laughs> if you only got to the water level once this year, you got problems. And all of us who aren't making it to the water level arguing about who got the closest is foolishness. Let me add this to, to, to that to help you understand. This flow of thought that Paul has goes right into verse 24. And what does Paul say? Having made this statement that everybody without distinction is here in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and all are present tense falling short. Then he says, and are justified. You see, the way I understood the passage before, when I use it only for unbelievers when it's only them who are falling short and somehow at the moment of conversion something changes and I'm no longer falling short but now on my own I've been given some spiritual upgrades and now I can through some means make it on my own then all verse 24 needs to say is and are forgiven. Does that make sense? Because if I can do it on my own, once I've put my faith in Christ, if I can somehow measure up, then all I need God to do for me is forgive me for my past failing and give me a good attaboy so I can go after it and measure up. But that's not our reality. 
And I'm telling you, as your pastor, I'm telling you, when I look back on 2018, the testimony of my life is that I am failing. I am not measuring up. So I don't need verse 24 to say, and are forgiven. It has to say so that I have hope. It has to say, and are justified. It has to say that. What does that mean? What means that just like our normal human experience is that at every significant marker in our lives, we look back and we collectively go, we're not measuring up. We're failing. That's our normal experience. There was one who was born at just the right time. Born under the law. And his normal experience was the exact opposite of our experience. At every significant moment that Jesus Christ would have looked back over his life, his testimony would have been, I'm doing it! I am loving God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength, all of my mind. I'm loving my neighbor as myself. I am perfectly at every moment reflecting the glory of my Father. The exact opposite of us. And so because He does that perfectly, He has no debt to pay. See, we owe a debt. We owe a debt because we were created to reflect the glory of God and we haven't been reflecting His glory and we owe God that glory. We owe God. Not Satan, not the world, not ourselves. We owe God. And we can't pay. But Christ did it perfectly. He owed no debt so He could give Himself as our redemption, which is what Paul says. He could pay that debt for us. And because Jesus Christ, living that perfect life, there was no wrath for Him. At no point did He fail and deserve the wrath of God. So He, not having wrath of His own coming His way from God the Father because He failed, He then could say, here's what I will do. I will take your sin on Me. I will pay your debt. And I will take on the wrath that you deserve. And if, by grace, through faith, you will trust in Me, you will get My righteousness. See, this started out, and as Paul argues this, verse 20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. There's a word again, justified. No one's going to be justified by law keeping. Why? Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, what happened when the law hit our life? It exposed what was there. It didn't make me a sinner. It exposed what was in me already. I was a sinner. And when the law was laid on, it shows that when the standard of the glory of God is put out there, it's clear I don't measure up. But when the law was laid on Christ's life, it showed who He was perfect, righteous Son of God. Don't ever think that Jesus became righteous through law-keeping. 
He was righteous. And just like we were sinners and the law laid upon us exposed our sin, Jesus Christ was righteous and the law laid upon His life exposed His righteousness. So He says, here's the deal. You can never measure up. If you are left to yourselves, no amount of forgiveness will make you measure up. No amount of spiritual upgrades will make you measure up. You cannot do it. So, here's the deal. The only way to be justified is as a gift of grace. That's it. You put your faith in Me and you will receive My righteousness. That's the only way. That is the only way to measure up. So now we've talked about all of these things and I could go on about this, but I, I, I want to I get to this point because some of you are going, I have no clue what this means for me as I consider the end of one year and the beginning of a new year. So let me, let me just say this. 2018, what happens when I look back? Because here's what I want. Here, I want us to look back on 2018 not with an inward focus, but an outward focus on Christ. I want us to look forward to 2019 not with an inward focus or trying to find hope that we will somehow do better. With our hope firmly in Christ. What I want us to do is look back on 2018 wearing the glasses of the Gospel looking through the lenses of justification. If you're going to do any evaluation of 2018 and how you lived in your life, you have got to look through the lenses of justification. I'm absolutely convinced of that because I have done some really weird, screwed up, contorted things as I've looked back over my past when I don't look through the lenses of justification. Here, here's what I'll do. One of the things that I do when I look back, if I'm not looking through the lenses of justification, is I push aside all of the failures, and I take those few high moments, and I begin to boast in my progress and how good I'm doing. I, I, I leave 2018, and there are even people who would tell you this is what you need to do. What you need to do is go back and remember the positive and reject all the negative, and this is what will give you hope as you move into 2019, will be to consider all of the good things that you did and focus on those things. But here's what that's done in me, okay? This is me, right? You know what that sounds like in me when I do that? It sounds like me showing up one Sunday and we're singing and I'm praying and saying, God, I'm so thankful that this past year I've read my Bible more and I'm thankful that I pray longer than I used to and I'm thankful that a few times I fasted. I probably will never do that again, but I did it. And I'm thankful that I give the grace promise and I'm thankful that I show up to almost every church event and I'm thankful that open my eyes a little bit I'm thankful that I'm not like that person over there. Man, their marriage is falling apart. Their kids are brats. What I end up doing is sounding like the Pharisee. Right? In Jesus' parable. I'm standing there and I'm saying, this is it. This is why I have confidence. This is my confidence. I did it. I made it. I'm measuring up. I'm doing it. Well, okay, maybe I'm not measuring up, but I'm getting closer. And I'm going to keep striving. And in my striving, it will keep getting me closer. I've got to start 
by looking through the lenses of justification and acknowledge this reality that even at my highest of moments in 2018, this is our confession, folks, at my highest moment in 2018, I was miserably falling short. I was miserably falling short. See, here's this crazy thing that, that I do, and, and, and maybe you do it too. I am ready and willing to hold fast to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as access to the Father for anyone who would come to me and say, how do I get saved? Somebody asked you that question this week. They say, how do I get saved? I don't know of anyone, certainly who's a member of this church, that would say, well, you know, it's kind of like Google Maps. There are a couple different routes, and one's going to take longer than the other, and one will take you through a bad part of town. You just got to kind of figure out what you want to do. No, what would we say? There's only one way to be saved. Only one way. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And we will, we will readily accept persecution and mockery for the reality of this exclusivity of Jesus Christ for salvation. But for some reason, what we're tempted to do is leave the exclusivity of Christ at the moment of conversion and watch it fade in the mirror as we think that now as a believer, I have some other means of access to the Father. So I think... when. Jesus is answering Thomas in the upper room, John 14. And He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. I think He was talking to sinners. That's for unbelievers. Jesus didn't say it was for unbelievers. He didn't say, I'm the only way to the Father, but then after you get saved, whole new plan, flip things around, there's other ways. It's always, ever, only Jesus. That's it. There is no other way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life from the moment I get saved all the way to glorification. He is my only hope. Why? Because my reality is that on my own, I am always falling short. I'm always falling short. So as I look back on 2018, I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that I'm falling short. I, here's what Paul says. He says, when you have these lenses on, there is no room for boasting. There's no room for boasting, but here's what confidence I do have as I leave 2018, is that there were really moments in 2018 where I experienced and knew the love of God. And there were moments that I enjoyed fellowship with Him in prayer. And there were moments that I know He spoke to me as I gathered with my brothers and sisters in Christ under the preaching of the Word. And when I consider those moments, I don't go, man, that must have happened because I put myself in just the right place at just the right time. No, I go, His promises are good. Jesus Christ was enough in 2018 because any bit of fellowship I enjoyed with the Father was because... I am justified as a free gift of grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So then what do I do as I look forward to 2019? What do I say? Because here, I, I, I know, and I, I wrestle with these things because I know one of the thoughts in mind then is, is when, I, when I stop with the evaluation of 2018 there, one of the questions, the rightful questions is, then does that mean it doesn't matter how I lived in 2018? 
Does it mean it doesn't matter? Does it mean that I can just do whatever I want? Well, Paul answers that at the end of Romans 3. He says, listen, and, and this, is my, this is my experience when I take off the lenses of justification and go to evaluate myself. Here's what I always do. I bring down the standard. I always do. I make the standard a former version of myself. Well, at least i got to be better than I was in 2016. As long as I'm better than I was in 2016, God's got to be happy with me. Or I make one of you the standard. Not one of you that's you know, way out there. Somebody that's down where I think down here and I can feel good while I compare myself to you in your lowly state. When the accusation comes, Paul, are you saying then that you overthrow the law by this? Paul says, no, this is the only means of upholding it. This is the only means of leaving this glorious standard of God's perfect glory as high and lofty as it is and saying, I'm not going to try and pull it down. I'm not going to create any other standards. I'm going to leave it as high and glorious as it is. And I'm going to sink all of my hope into Jesus Christ and Him alone as my means of having the righteousness that I need. I'm not going to look anywhere else. So 2019, what, what do I do as we move into 2019? What does it mean if I look through the lenses of justification into 2019? Well, I would say Paul gives us a great <clears throat> list of things in chapter 5 because he tells us exactly what some of these ramifications of justification are. And here, here's the main thing. When I look into the next year, 2019, through the lenses of justification, I don't put the cart in front of the horse. I don't seek to motivate myself to gain what I already have in Christ. Rather, I am motivated by what I have in Christ. Let's look at what Paul says. Chapter 5 of Romans, this is what he says, Therefore, since we have been justified... Past tense, it's, it's, not a, it's not an ongoing thing. Don't hear me saying that justification is an ongoing process. It is a one-time event that remains our hope for all of our Christian lives. So, since we have been justified, here's what we have. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When I look into 2019, I look through the lenses of justification and I know because I am justified, I have peace with God. What else? Through Him, verse 2, we have obtained access by faith. We have access. Because I am justified as a gift of grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, I have access to the Father. Unhindered access. Now, let me just give you an example of what I mean when I talk about motivations because here has been for so many years my motivation. If I wanted to make everyone in here feel guilty about how you lived in 2018, there's always one subject any pastor can go to. Prayer. Did you pray as much as you should in 2018? Huh? Let me see the knees of those pants. Are they wearing out because you were on your knees so much? You pray for every prayer request that came out from the church email. You prayed for this. If you prayed for that, how many time, How much time have you spent? How long? Right? 
We all feel that. And for years, my motivation for my prayer life was this sense of needing to figure out some way to pray the right amount of time, the right frequency, get the right number of people to pray, pray the right formula, you know, the the whole Acts outline, whatever, and get all that right, and pray the right amount of Scripture, and make sure that I'm not praying uh, in, in wrong ways, and get all of this formula just right, so that I can know that I have access to the Father and He hears me when I pray. And I can tell you from years of doing it that way, it is a horrible motivator. Here's what should motivate me to prayer. I am guaranteed access to God through Jesus Christ. He is listening. He's even listening to my stupid prayers. The prayers that a week later I'm like, God, please do not answer that. I don't know what I was thinking... Don't answer that. He hears me not because He looks on me and says, man, Eric, you the way you formulated that prayer, the amount of people you got to pray for that prayer request, the amount of time you spent praying for that prayer request, the amount of Scripture you were able to tie in to that prayer request, bam, that was the ticket. You gained access. You got in. Bingo. I listened. It is a much greater motivation to know that in my weak and broken state, not even knowing what I should pray. Isn't that our reality? I look out on you and I know some of you are in situations, I don't even know what to pray for you. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, if I knew just the right thing, I know what maybe what I want, but I don't know how to pray for you. There's no one right, simple answer, silver bullet prayer. And so you just go to God and you say, God, I am so weak and I don't even know what to pray. And my confidence in those moments is not that I'm going to figure it out. It's that I have access. He hears me because my life is hid in Christ. I have access. And then this is, he says this. He continues this way. Verse 2. Therefore, or through Him, sorry, we have, we, have, we, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand. <laughs> we stand in grace. We have act. We stand. Okay. We stand in grace. I, I won't. I'm not going to. I'm not going to say what the things that are coming to my mind. Well, I, I'll, we could have coffee anytime, and I'll tell you all those things that are coming to my mind, right there. But I could get. Yeah. Anyway. We stand in grace. Okay, let me. Can I just say this? God's grace is yours in Christ Jesus. There is nothing you will do in 2019 to somehow better position yourself. And it sounds so silly when we say it, to earn God's grace. It won't happen. Okay, so here's what happens. And i got to get to this because this is so good. So we stand, and there's grace in which we stand and we rejoice. So present tense, we're giddy. We're happy. An inner happiness. A happiness that is that is based on something. What is it based on? It's based on a hope. Not a wish. A hope. Biblical hope. Meaning it is a certain thing that we haven't, that hasn't been fully realized yet, but it's totally certain. So we're present tense giddy when we consider 
our justification in Christ, we have present tense joy about something that hasn't happened yet. We're the kid that knows they're going to Disney World, they haven't gotten to Disney World yet, but they're already excited about it. Are we there yet? What's going on? When are we leaving? I think I see it. Every tree on the highway. That's Disney World. No, that's not it. We're present tense there. This hope is this hope is in what? Do you see it? Look at the text. Do you see it? You've got to see this. What's the hope? This just this just blows your mind. What's the hope? The glory of God. How in the world in Romans 5:2 is our hope the glory of God when in Romans 3 23 it is the standard that we're not measuring up to. How could that be? The only thing Paul has talked about through all of that text is one thing. The justifying work of Jesus Christ. That's it! So that now, because I am in Christ, what was my condemnation is such a sure hope that I am present tense giddy about the day that I will see the glory of God. Because I have this confidence, because I am certain that Christ was sufficient in all of His life, in His death and in His resurrection, that I will stand before the Father without spot, but with great joy. That's my confidence. I am present tense rejoicing in a hope and that hope is the very glory of God that would have been my condemnation had Christ not measured up. So that's the reason chapter 4. You have to go back and read it on your own, but that's the reason chapter 4 we're introduced to this guy named David. Not the superhero David that we've tried to make him out to be. The actual David in the Bible. Have you ever asked yourself how in the world David had any... How could he reasonably write Psalm 19? The David in the Bible, writing Psalm 19, going on about creation, and then just blows your mind away with the beauty of the law of God. You go, wait a second, isn't this the David that got into like the bulldozer and smashed the throttle all the way down? He didn't just kind of break the law. He like full bore smashed it down and kept going. How in the world could that David rejoice in the law of God? Well, Paul tells us, he quotes David's own words. Chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Because David wasn't looking to his law-keeping as his means of justification. Rather, David put his faith in the promises of God and was justified the same way Abraham was justified. By faith. And so then, the commands which we do not ignore, the many commands given to us in the New Testament, we do not ignore them. No, what we do is we run with this fuel of knowing we are not striving to work our way into acceptance, but we work out of full acceptance. 
We are not striving to earn peace with God. We are laboring because we have peace with God. We're not striving so that we might have access. We know we do have access. And so we delight in the commands that God gives to us because we understand they're coming from a Father who has looked at us and seen us in our most wretched state and said, I love you. You are mine. You are totally accepted. So what what does Paul go to say? And we'll we'll stop with this. Verse 3, and not... Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Paul doesn't leave it up in some high lofty place. Detached from reality. No, Paul says this. He says, listen, this this great joy of justification comes all the way down so that we rejoice even in the midst of our suffering because suffering does what? Produces endurance and endurance character and character hope and our hope will not put us to shame. Why? Why? What is my hope as I suffer? You want to mess somebody up in the midst of feeling the pressures of life? Tell them that your friendship will be based upon how they perform in the face of that suffering. Look at your child the next time they're really suffering, the next time they've hit a low, and you tell them, listen, you either suck it up, or I'm going to be ashamed of you, and I will withdraw all of my love and affection, and you will no longer have access to me. What's the hope in the midst of our suffering? What causes us to endure? Why can we rejoice? Because our hope is sure. What's our hope in? What does Paul say? That the love of God has been poured into our hearts. The Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 4 verse 6, while we were still weak. Not physically weak. Totally incapable of measuring up. While we were still weak and still are weak, at the right time Christ died. And who did He die for? The ungodly. The ungodly. Let's pray together. Father, I, I pray that in these words, I, man, Lord, I pray, I pray that if there is anything here that's just me, that's just my thoughts, I pray those things would be so quickly forgotten. And I pray that the truth of Your Word would stand. I pray that we, that we as, as a congregation, that, that, that one of the ways that we would meet together and love each other would be that we constantly encourage each other not to an inward-looking, self-contemplating life, but that we would constantly be pointing one another to Christ and to the hope that we have in Him. So as we look back over 2018, I pray that that would be our hope, would be that would be Christ. And as we look to 2019, I pray that we would be looking to Christ. And that He, in Him, and in the hope that we have in Him, we would find motivation. We would find joy to endure, even in the face of the suffering that is sure to come our way. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.